As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the Internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed Internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. The race is on, and while we're getting excited about the possibility of the F1 season getting going in early July, albeit without holding our breath, we've got more listener questions to answer on Grand Prix racing, ancient and modern. We've also got an update about the 2021 cost cap and a look at F1's finances amid the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm Ed Straw, and my guests with all the answers are Mark Hughes and Scott Mitchell. Uh, Mark, let's uh, let's come to you first. Uh, I'd, I'd like an update on your on your lockdown antics. As last time I checked, you were watching lots of Canam, and I've, you've probably run out of Canam now to, to go through. So have you yeah, moved on to anything else? It didn't. It didn't run for very long, unfortunately. Um, not not long enough for this. The duration of this lockdown. Um, no, uh, bike riding. Continued bike riding. You know, my my uh, my daily exercise and. Um, few sort of adventures there um i was um going up country roads and just uh, looking at places i'd never been before and um thought i'd discovered this church but it turned out to be um a water tower it's limb water tower which is now a private house and i think it was in grand designs once so i, I spent wasted about half an hour trying to work out how to get to this church and it was just a water tower <laughs> and you got done for trespassing uh, no no they didn't see me oh yeah you're an accomplished trespasser, obviously. We, uh, we know who, we know who to send if we've got a little bit of uh, snooping to, to do. How about you, Scott? Any trespassing going on in uh, in Stockholm? Uh, no, not well. Not not never knowingly trespassed me. Um, so I, I might well have done. I, I don't. I don't feel like I've ventured far enough to actually come close to trespassing. On the subject of uh, uh, coming across, or well, what people think a, a church is, I actually not not in the last week or so, but like a couple of weeks ago. Um, went for a walk around Stockholm and walked up to this really cool old um, wooden church uh, that's about five, ten minutes walk from my flat. It's one of, if not the oldest, active uh, wooden churches in, in Stockholm. Um, it's really, really cool. 
uh, old building. And that one definitely is a church, not a water tower. I was going to say it could be a wooden, uh, a wooden water tower. It's good to know uh, people are getting their, uh, their exploring uh, in. That's, uh, that's, that's worth doing. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, it's going to be a little bit longer before we're we're out and about uh, on the F1 trial. Uh, we should actually, as well, Mark, let you get in your excuses early because you have warned us that you're you're close to a voice failure. Yes, indeed. Yes, um, it's it's not it's not at its strongest. So if it goes a bit um, squeaky, uh, I mean, you're warned in advance. Yeah, well, we're we're well used to your voice being a little bit odd anyway, so uh, it'll probably just be a different uh, a different kind of odd. Um, well, let's uh, before we get on to the listener questions, there are a few uh, a few news items to to tackle. Uh, Mark, obviously, we've got the the question of the, the cost cap. There's uh, we seem to be close to it being agreed as being 145 million dollar uh, cost cap. That's down from 175. That's the introduction in 2021. So, where exactly are we with that? Yeah, there's a general loose agreement at the moment that they will accept a cost cap of 145, as you say, coming down from the originally planned 175, and that it's got inclusions in you know driver salaries, engine manufacturer, etc. That's for 2021. Um, that's yet to be signed off, but it's generally agreed. What is not agreed is where the cap glides down to in 2022. Um, some teams are pushing for it to go down as low as 100 million. Um, Helmut Marco's campaigning for 130, um, but Ferrari's not at all happy about going any further below 145. Uh, the next stage is the Liberty FIA will come up with a proposal, which we can assume will be some sort of compromise between those positions, and the teams will vote on it. If it gets a majority, the FIA will then incorporate it into the cost cap agreement. But to repeat, it's, it's the 2022 figure that's being argued about. For 21, we look set for 145, um, which with the, exclusion, <coughs> with the exclusions is about 50 million less than Ferrari currently spends. So it's already quite a difficult squeeze if they don't want to make redundancies, and that's their big concern. Yeah, as always, the question of redundancies is the uh, is, is the big one. I think my my favourite exclusion in the cost cap is the three highest paid personnel outside of drivers. I always think I, I always imagine some of the highest paid personnel all agreeing that's a very very good uh, proposal. So I'm going to suggest a podcast co- cost cap whereby on this podcast the three highest paid guests, which of course is us three, can be paid as much as we want, and everyone else can have uh, very little. I think that's a who pays us. Uh, uh, you haven't been paid. <laughs> No, it's the, not that I cha- haven't been paid. I just wonder who <laughs> pays this sum that we decide unilaterally we're going to have. We we surely need the agreement of whoever's money it is. No, we can just arbitrarily decide. That's fine. The last thing you need to do is uh, is agree agree for the people who are paying. You you demand. That's how oh, you I do see. things. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Very, All right. Very, well, very you, I'll be right behind you, Ed. <laughs> excellent excellent well uh, uh scott there's also the uh the liberty media did their f1 first quarter financial results uh, back end of last week so you've got a bit of an idea of how much damage the pandemic has done uh so can you put that a little bit into context and where f1 is yeah we well we knew that the we knew that it wasn't going to be good news obviously but i still think um seeing it in black and white and and the extent of the numbers was still quite striking so um whichever way you want to uh, whichever way you want to cut the numbers, um, it's a it's a massive loss. Uh, it's total revenue for Q1 compared to 2019 is down more than 200 million dollars. That equates to 84 percent in total reduction. The primary revenue, which is broadcasting payments and hosting fees and sponsorship of races, is down. I think more than 90 percent. Um, and 
so it's obviously a colossal loss the if you wanted to try and look at it from an optimist perspective you could say that a business that has done no business in the first three months of 2020 has still made has still produced 39 million dollars in revenue Uh, but I think that's a slightly optimistic way of looking at it it's only going to get worse in Q2 because the Q1 only included Australia and Bahrain so the other eight races I think it is that have been postponed and or cancelled um those eight races fall within q2 so the numbers are going to be really really stark um when when those when they come out uh which will probably i think that'll be uh trying to do basic mathematics in my head that'll be at the start of july um so the damage is significant but to put it into context uh liberty hasn't included the money that they would have received from australia and bahrain because those races didn't go ahead they haven't included as well the payments that have been made to to teams because the way they do that within their accounting practices um they do that on a pro rata basis so because those races haven't technically happened those payments don't exist in liberty's accounting world and it'll all be sorted out further down the line uh so the numbers are what liberty is reported rather than 100 percent uh depiction of reality uh it, it is it is it is obviously very bad but it should also be pointed out that f1 is very confident that it can come through this even in the worst case scenario that there is no racing in 2020 because a couple of weeks ago now um liberty media did this very complex uh reattribution within within the group that shifted a bunch of debt and assets away from formula one onto a different side of the liberty business and gave liberty uh, gave the f1 side of liberty more than a billion dollars in in cash basically to, to to play around with so they have an emergency fund they're not going to be handing out candy as chase carey said to teams or partners or whatever but there is now in a position they're in a position to shore up their own finances whatever happens and if worse if worst case scenario develops maybe they can they can help teams out as well all things considered mark it seems that the f1 and uh, and liberty as a whole have done a done a reasonable job in reacting to the to the wider situation doesn't it it's never easy but moves have been taken they're not just sticking their head in the sand and assuming everything will work out once the world starts turning again no, they've been very proactive. They're anticipating the the pain it's going to be causing to the teams, um, and they've got themselves, as Scott was saying, um, a whole bunch of uh, li- liquidity to uh, help them get over that. What's hopefully going to be a uh, a one season hump um, may go on longer than that. But uh, I I think that Liberty's um, generally Liberty's pockets are deep enough to get us through with out the other side with um everybody in terms of the teams um still you know st- still in shape still in shape to compete um and that i think yes they've they've they've, uh, they've done absolutely as much as has been humanly possible on that and as part of that obviously the determination to get the season up and running uh, as as quickly as possible with the hope of running in austria with a, the biosphere races they're calling it with teams are not, not allowed to mingle and just testing every two days all these things so they're they're, they're doing what they can to get uh, up and running as as soon as possible well, let, let's move on to our listener questions now we'll uh, we'll rotate between us so uh, this one's coming to you first scott uh, this is from bernhard just bernhard via twitter does there need to be an asterisk against the winner of the 2020 season would it in any way blemish lewis hamilton's achievement should he equal schumacher's record 
Um, I think the well, the, the easy answer is no, because um, F1 seasons have been at various lengths since the inception of the World Championship in 1950. And uh, we don't put an asterisk against the winner of any of the early seasons, do we? Um, so I, I think... It would obviously be looked on as an exceptional season, but there are challenges that go into winning a reduced 2020 season that don't exist in in other years. You know, it's going to be, if Lewis ends up winning the 2020 title and equal Schumacher's record, he'll have done it with what must go down as the longest break between races in F1 history, um, at least certainly in recent history. Uh, and he's had to overcome months out of the car. He's responded to an extraordinary scenario best and better than any of his rivals. Um, it will be a test because it will mean that Mercedes and Hamilton didn't let anything slip in a short number of races. There's going to be more pressure than ever to, to maximise the races available. So I don't think it comes with an asterisk in, in, in a negative sense. The only asterisk you'd apply to it is you would just look on that as when Hamilton won this title, it was done in utterly extraordinary circumstances, but I don't think that's a bad thing. It'd be the same for whoever wins it, whether if it's if it's Max Verstappen, Charles Leclerc, Sebastian Vettel, uh, whoever. I think the uh, the number of races doesn't really impact every championship's got its own uh, character hasn't it and the way it goes and it may be that because of the way the season goes something strange happens and you could say well actually the best driver didn't win but uh, that's the, that's the same with uh, with any season I'd say well Mark question for you Scott sort of touched on this very briefly about the, the long gap uh, this is not just Andrew on, on Twitter. Uh, asks, will when F1 returns in a couple of months' time, the teams and drivers need a two or three day pre-season test just to get drivers and staff operationally ready for the season? So you're the perfect person for this because you wrote a piece on the on the race's website at therace.com, and don't forget the hyphen, uh, about this exact challenge uh, recently. Yeah, I talked to the driver trainer, uh, Dr. Ceccarelli, about the mental effects of the layoff, particularly in lockdown, and he makes some fascinating points. Um, essentially, there are many potential hazards in mental mental preparation in this period, and how well each driver has combated them will be important, and there's probably there's likely to be some differences there up and down the field. Um, in terms of uh, would they uh, get a, a pre-season test, it it's, might be something they'd like, but in reality it's it's not likely to happen that way. Um, assuming we state a plan with the first lockdown races in Austria, with the quarantine and the virus testing arrangements, there's, there's not going to be time. It's going to be straight into the program. Um, but it'll be interesting to see if um, there are any drivers that might be a little rusty and um, see how that plays out. Yeah, and of course, even if they do want to do testing, etc., it's going to be difficult to work out how to do it because they're going to great lengths if Austria happens to create a, a clean environment this biosphere so even even running unless you do it at the track ahead of uh, ahead of, uh, of it, it's it's a it's difficult to work out how best to to do that tough challenge isn't it scott yeah i, th- I think it is um we've had a few drivers now that have talked about how rusty people will be when the season starts george russell seems particularly optimistic that there'll be some opportunities um kevin magnuson sort of maybe on the more pragmatic side of things has pointed out that he's um he had a, a, a nearly an entire season out of a car uh what would that have been in 2015 between his McLaren stint and return with Renault and said that after um you know halfway through the first day of winter winter testing it felt like he'd just had a normal winter out of the car so it comes back very quickly and if the teams can get down to 
you know, lots of mileage. We'll probably have the busiest Friday we've ever had uh, in the history of the World Championship. But I, I think it will be fascinating to see how they, um, to see how they, uh, see how they cope. And ultimately, the the best drivers will um, will prevail. And in the in in the greatest segue in the history of the in, this podcast, uh, speaking of the best drivers, Ed, next question's for you. Who do you think were the best F one drivers never to win a race? That's from Patrick Down. And he clarifies, I'm thinking those who had a career of some length, but who never got in a decent car rather than those killed or injured before their time. Well, the go-to answer on the the best never to win is normally Chris Amon, and for, for good reason. Uh, he did win non-championship races, 1970 International Trophy, for example, but we're really talking about world championship races here, which he never never did. He got incredibly close. 68 probably is the, the, the classic season for him for Ferrari. He had four pole positions, various problems. When the Ferrari machinery didn't let him down, uh, a rock hit his radiator, so uh, it cost him uh, victory, at, uh, victory at Spa. Uh, he's also a driver who probably cost himself victory by ripping off his own visor accidentally at uh, Monza in 71. That was the race that was famous won by Peter Gethin in that close finish he tried to remove a tear off but but damaged his visor and ended up finishing six it's, it's pretty amazing you can get five poles and, and lead seven races without managing to win one but but Eamon managed it and there, there was one caveat in that question about never getting into a top car but although Eamon did drive for Ferrari it wasn't at a classic time for Ferrari he also drove for Matra and of course Matra won the uh uh well, the championship with in, with a Tyrrell run car with Jackie Stewart, but the the works match team wasn't wasn't quite as good. So I'd argue he never quite got into into great machinery. But there's there's a whole litany of of drivers. Jean Pierre Jarier is another one. There are a few races uh, he he should have won um, in the shadow and when he started from pole and and was in the lead towards the end of the race um, in 1975. Is the the obvious one, and of course he'd had a another race just before that when um, uh, he. Went, was meant to start on pole in Argentina about a, a crown wheel uh, failure so there's a driver who who should have won uh, Mark any drivers you want to throw into the mix there's there's quite a long list really aren't there yeah a few and I think I'd um, concur with you on Amon that's just a statistical freak really I mean he in terms of the stature how, how good the drivers were that have never won a, a Grand Prix he for me stands head and shoulders above the others. He, he's worthy of comparison to some of the greats in terms of virtuoso performances that he's he's put in. You know, he's been leading races by a minute. You know, against Jackie Stewart and people like that. So one of the greats, and for me, he would be head and shoulders. But I think that's not quite the um, the gist of the question. So in terms of those guys that didn't. Um, that had a long career but didn't quite get into a a good car. Uh, yeah, Jaria definitely. Um, probably the fastest driver of of the this the second group, I would say. Um, but as an all round package, he had some limitations. Let's let's say. Um, I'd put into that mix Bern Schneider, um, Pierluigi Martini. Uh, Sergio Perez. Mart- Martini's a very, very good uh, call, actually. I think he's very underrated. Um, I'd put Martin Brundle in there as well. Um, had he not hurt his foot in his first season, I suspect that he'd not even have been on this list and would have won Grand Prix. Um, but his form up to that point was pretty sensational. And the momentum he had coming off that F3 season where he went head-to-head with Senna, 
was just as quick when they tested the McLaren until Senna got another run with a more powerful engine. Um, it was pretty much as quick as Stefan Belafazzi's teammate, who was a sensational talent himself, points on his debut. So he, he looked fantastic, but then suffered that awful foot injury. Um, it's sort of uh, similar to Johnny Herbert, although Johnny won races anyway, so he's outside the scope of this question. Um, but yeah, Martini uh, had a fantastic uh, record against his teammates, but he alternated between Minardi's and Dallara's and things like that, so it wasn't ever in a top team. Um, but as an all-round package, I, I suspect it might be Schneider. Yeah, Schneider's uh, Schneider's quite an interesting call, uh, I would say, because sometimes you get drivers who could or would on their day have won them had things gone slightly differently. But Schneider, yeah, was was never in a in a remotely good car really in uh, in, in Formula One, but had a had a few years uh, that it's, it's a good one. Anyone you want to throw in, Scott? Um, I think if you're looking at just to throw a couple of the sort of more recent names into the mix, I think. Nico Hulkenberg's never even had a podium, <laughs> which is just crazy. And I think if you'd have said during Hulkenberg's meteoric rise through the ranks uh, that he would never get a podium, let alone win a race in, in Formula One, that would have seemed crazy given the success that he had. Um, I think sort of looking a little bit further back, um, I think someone like uh, Derek Warwick, who... who, um, who for 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 me when i was when i was younger and first sort of exposed to wider motorsport i have to admit i'm pretty sure i've said this to derek as well i had a completely different impression of derek's caliber as a racing driver because my first experience or well my only experience of him as a racing driver when i was younger was him in in the btcc uh, in the in the in the 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 Alfa Romeo's um, sophomore season in in Super Touring in the UK, which was a, a an unmitigated disaster, uh, and then obviously his spell with in 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 the Vectras as well. Um, so just that uncompetitive machinery, just and it just he the BTCC for someone who didn't know his F1 pedigree made him look like an ex F1 driver of poor reputation and and quality. So. Uh, to then, as I got older, and then discovered just just how how good he was, and how I find it quite ridiculous that he never won races. Obviously, he had the the the, the Renault Renault stint in a fast but fragile car, and then obviously uh, his career took a different direction thanks to the uh, assistance of One Air and Senna as well. So I, I think Warwick's I think Warwick's quite high on the list as well. Yeah, there's uh, there's a huge list of drivers who. Uh, who probably could have won races uh, given the the right opportunity. For the most part, the the, the kind of extraordinary talents normally find their way, but uh, but doesn't always. You don't always get the career you uh, you deserve. Uh, Scott, next question for you. Joe Deersley asks, how realistic is a return to San Marino or a race at the Portimao circuit? Probably have been bullish about their ability to host a race. So, Imola or Algarve, do you think they're uh, a threat to hold a Grand Prix this year? Uh, I think they're not as likely as Hockenheim, shall we say? And uh, we we know from the from the call that uh, that Chase Carey was on uh, discussing the the Q1 results for for Liberty Media um, last week. Uh, Chase admitted for the first time that there are discussions with tracks plural 
that weren't on the original 2020 schedule. And this is because F1 is obviously not scrambling as such, but is trying to work out what kind of schedule it can put together in Europe to have races that don't need to host fans. And obviously that completely changes the dynamic of discussions. It it opens up the door to venues that would otherwise be be unrealistic uh, hopefuls for a Grand Prix because it's the cost of holding a race, the the, the race hosting fee that F1 commands that, that puts a lot of these um, circuits out of business. It's why Germany fell off the calendar, um, was rescued for 2019, but is, is back off it again for 2020. So all of a sudden, you've seen a bunch of circuits come out of the woodwork. Imola is one that for the last 12 months, I think, has been constantly sort of chancing its arm and saying, well, hey, come on, we're, we're here. We're, we'd be up for it. We can't give you any money, but hey, let's have a Grand Prix here. Um, Algarve has, I think, fairly recently, hasn't it, been been upgraded and is now it now satisfies the necessary form, uh, FIA specifications, and and they're getting really bullish about the prospects of something behind closed doors. They say that they say that they've held trials and that they could be an option to F1 or MotoGP, but I think, but I think that Hockenheim is the best option. I think that's probably the most serious because it's a circuit that was host hosting f1 races until last year it knows what it knows what's needed and f1 knows what it gets from it uh most importantly it knows that it's got the capacity and the experience to pull it off so i wouldn't i'd be surprised if algarve or imola suddenly cropped up on a revised schedule but i wouldn't be as surprised if something like hockenheim suddenly re-emerged there's a connected question to this, which I'll throw to you, Mark, which is from Phil Wright, saying F1's been on a ruthless drive to find new circuits in recent years, and they've lost some more historic circuits. But with the current COVID situation, has the balance shifted with some of the these older circuits, the European tracks uh, that have been uh, been left behind? Is F1 now reliant on those to be able to put together a championship? Uh, the balance has shifted um, between formula one itself and the the circuits that it's in discussion with it compared to how it was before the, uh, the before the, the virus um because obviously f1's now desperate the whole race is supposed to get the tv rights income which in essence feeds the teams but they can't charge a hosting fee obviously when races are behind closed doors the circuits have no way of making money from the ticket sale so yeah in the negotiating with liberty the circuits are in a position to strike a deal that works for them deals that have nothing to do with the original race hosting deals um but returning to the point about the uh, other older circuits um it's it's not re- when formula one's not really um at the moment things stand scrabbling about looking for venues it's it's more um it's if we start in july at um, austria and follow on with silverstone and hungary after that there's a there's a little gap where we can slot some more races in um which much more likely to be a hockenheim or a barcelona um than a a long ago circuit you know so um after that the hopeful plan is uh, this latter part of the season um will continue as originally scheduled you know the, with with some tweaks obviously but generally a, a shape that looks quite familiar so i don't think the um the big uh limitation is is having is finding suitable venues so the, the the ones that are in discussion, yes, the the balance has changed, but I don't think the old old circuits are in uh, really um, a particularly strong position. 
Yeah, especially considering Europe isn't exactly uh, in, a, in a great situation at the moment, so, uh, pandemic-wise as well, is it? So uh, would you agree with all that, Scott? Yeah, definitely. Um, Carey's said that they're, they're getting increasingly confident now with the number of um, number of uh, venues and, and races that are races that are not only willing to host the race but actually able to as well because obviously as as mark says uh, f1 is not never has any shortage of suitors it's just whether or not those suitors are suitable uh so i i i think i think it just comes down to the the logistics of of making it work and i i don't i don't i agree with, with mark i don't foresee um an utterly unexpected old race um coming from uh coming from absolutely absolutely nowhere um, I'll throw the next question to, to you, Ed. It's from our video editor extraordinaire, Luke Hinsel, who is not allowed on the podcast himself, but we can at least include his, uh, his question, his terrible, terrible question. Um, he asks, uh, if you're a new team boss for 2021 with a hypothetical new entry, which two out-of-contract drivers are you signing? I mean, if, you, um, if you're putting together a new team for 2021 now, in May 2020, first of all, you've got more money than cents. And second of all, I think you've got bigger issues to overcome than your out-of-contract contract drivers. But let's humour Luke. What, what's your answer? Well, by out-of-contract, I'm going to restrain it, restrict it to those who might be feasibly interested, because I'm not sure Lewis Hamilton or Daniel Ricciardo would be very keen on, on straw F1. Zero uh, ambition. <laughs> Zero ambition. Uh, but setting aside all non-racing considerations, so not worrying about budget, sponsorship, etc., you definitely need someone with a good amount of F1 experience. So I think probably Nico Hülkenberg. He's he's still a current driver, quick, still young and motivated enough to give it his all with something to prove. And while his F1 career hasn't hasn't gone quite as hoped and I don't think he's always done the absolute maximum to to extract the massive ability that is there we have also seen a lot of very very impressive performances from him the second one's a bit tricky because my kind of natural inclination is to have a high quality young driver that's bringing a rookie but I'd also want them to be someone I can sign up fully to be to be under contract to my team and not sort of on loan from anyone else which is quite tricky with the amount of teams that have got young driver schemes I'd probably have a look at someone like Robert Schwartzman, who's due to race in F2 with Prima this year, but he's a little bit tricky because obviously with that season being delayed, he won't have a, a kind of normal F2 season to, to go through before that. And of course, he is already under contract uh, with, with another big team. So I might, as a new team, be looking for experience. There's, there's part of me that's quite tempted to go a little bit left field, actually, and bring in another driver with experience, but he's been out of F1, certainly racing in F1 for a, for a while. And that's Paul Pedro De La Rosa. No, no, no. Well, Pe- I'll tell you what, Pedro would probably be interested <laughs> in it. He's a, he's a good driver in his time, Pe- uh, Pedro. He'd probably still do a decent job. But yeah, Paul De Resta, which I know is a slightly odd suggestion, and people will raise their eyebrows, but a very, very good driver. He was bumped off the grid at a point where more teams needed money, ultimately. Um I think other than the last half season where things got away from him a little bit with with Force India, I think he's a, a high quality driver. And he showed when he dropped into the Williams a few years ago in Hungary that he can still do a, a, a decent job. So maybe for a first year, I might go with that experience lineup. But I'd also be kind of looking around to see who who might drop off the the merry go round as it as it were. Uh, but I think even so, even if I had, had two experienced drivers, I'd definitely be looking at the next uh, young driver to bring on because I do quite I do like having a, a high quality. rookie driver to come in and and develop and uh, either make the most of as the team rises or sell on to uh, a bigger team at a vast profit that's the eddie jordan model Uh, anyone you'd go for scott 
Um, well, I find it amazing that you didn't even consider Fernando Alonso. I, I, I was of the impression that Fernando is so desperate to get back into F1 and surely he'd accept a, at least a conversation with Straw F1. Uh, but fair I, enough. I think I think this would be another. This again is same as Hamilton or Ricardo. I don't really think a, a brand new team like this with uh, with necessary modest expectations would uh, would benefit from having a driver of that extraordinary level. Uh, it's uh, yeah, it's just uh, it's just about picking the best driver for the uh, for the situation. But you never know. You know, he, he'd be an interesting one commercially and perhaps we could have a discussion perhaps he could be a part perhaps he, we, he could come in as an equity partner of the team as well there's possibilities there now I and mean, there's no question how of how good Alonso is there's there have been there have been more ridiculous attempts to to get drivers into teams and to launch teams than than consider uh, a partnership with with Fernando um I don't know, I think I think could you Hulkenberg- be hinting at Jack Villeneuve <laughs> I, I I think I think Hulkenberg's actually Villeneuve probably fancies his chances at this, doesn't he? Um, I think Hulkenberg is is a good shout, but I think he would. My I think his concern would be. I don't think he would do what let's say a, a Roman Grosjean did and take a punt on a new team because Hulkenberg I think would only. His suggestion is he'd only come back to F one with a team that he feels is uh, capable of. Um, you know, producing a weapon that can fight for points, and I'm not trying to disparage the the the, the intentions of Straw F1, but I think you might struggle uh, to do that outside of the box. Uh, I I would uh, I would move uh, move heaven and earth to to get like a proper Mercedes engine deal, and then see if I can um, see if I can try and prize one of uh, one of their drivers. You never know whether or not you'll, you you could have a, a situation where that um, someone like Kovalainen was in. When he, you know, you lose a, you lose a big team drive, and all of a sudden you're tumbling right down to the other end of the grid. So if they decided to flick Valtteri Bottas, for example, maybe you could sneak in Bottas. But I'm not really sure. I mean, I, I, I think I think it is difficult because you just never really know exactly how much you can sell your team to these drivers. But I think if you're looking at, um, let's say for argument's sake, you can. Um, you can tempt drivers, you know, your ambitions aren't a problem. I think a combination of, say, a Hulkenberg or a, and a Guan Yu Zhu or something like that, because Zhu is someone who's going to bring a lot of money to your team. It's whether or not you can prize him from his Renault link. So, yeah, I like that. I like that mix of experience and, and, and youth. It would just depend how credible your team is as an entry. Oh, it'd be very credible, I'm sure. Um, any, <laughs> any names you'd throw in there, Mark, or uh, have, we, have we covered everyone well, in the world? Yeah, I mean, just, just to change the. Comp- yeah, the, the 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 context, the question a little bit. Let's assume it's not it's not a struggling low budget, low rent entity like Straw F One. Let, let's let's pretend it's <laughs> let's pretend it's a mega manufacturer team with the unlimited budget. I don't know. It's 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 Porsche backed by the VW Group, and it's it's paid off all its diesel fines and everything. Um, yeah, I'd put Hamilton and Alonso back together again. You know, I like a challenge. Um, if 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 I couldn't get one of those two, it'd, it'd be Danny Ricciardo. If I couldn't get any of them, then I'd go for Vettel. But yeah, why not? Aim high. Yeah, well, if you got the uh, if you got the the money behind it, and the name behind it, um, that's uh, that's well worth going for. Scott, moving on. Uh, Mike8498 on Twitter. I'm not sure that's his real surname. Uh, but he asked, how many DAS systems do you think we'll see at the first race? 
I, I don't doubt that that's his surname because, as we've seen recently with uh, from Elon Musk, there are some uh, there are some quite strange numerical and letter combination names going around now. So it could be. Um, I think I'm going to keep this answer really short. I think there will be one, and it will be on the Mercedes, and I don't even know if it will be used because teams haven't been able to develop these sorts of systems because of the, the the shutdowns that they've been observing. So it's not like people have been working at the factory improving their cars. Um, it's going to be banned for next year anyway. So I, I think this uh, I think this situation has completely eradicated the the possibility of the DAS being spawned elsewhere. Uh, and because of the controversy over it and the threat of a Red Bull protest in Australia, I'm not entirely convinced that Mercedes will use it, even if they, uh, because it w- I would imagine it will still be on the car. I'm not su- suggesting they'll overhaul it, but it'll ma- maybe it'll be there and it, it will just never never be used in an, in an official session. I'm inclined to agree with that. The same, would you say the same, Mark? Yes, it, for, for all those reasons. Um, but yeah, it, it's mainly the shutdown and um, the, the the very short length of time between the end of shutdown and the first race. Uh, well, we can move on to your next question now, Mark, which is from Danny Hoare. In your opinion, what season stands out in which a driver outperformed his car the most? Schumacher 96 with Ferrari and Senna 93 with McLaren spring to mind initially. Schumacher 95, I'd say even more than 96, actually. The, the, the Benetton wasn't as good a car that year as the Williams and like the year before. And there were no questions over its legality this time, yet Schumacher dominated. Um, then when he, he got to try the 95 Ferrari at the end of the season, of course, when he switched teams, and he couldn't believe how good that was. He said he'd have won the 95 title much easier in that Ferrari than in his Benetton. Um, he much preferred that car to the 96 Ferrari, incidentally. Senna 93, not so much. I think the highs were incredibly high, um, maybe even higher than even he ever flew. Um, I'm thinking of Donington in particular. But, but there, there were also a few races where he didn't really perform that well or he, he wasted energy on pointlessly screwing Alan Prost around. Um, <laughs> for, Schumacher 95 for me, I'd say. I'd, that, that would be the season I'd nominate. Yeah, that's fair. Any seasons springing to mind for you, Scott? <sighs> And it went away. It went a little bit weirdly at the end, but obviously in the the, the, the modern era, Alonso in twenty twelve stands out as a as a as a particularly good season, aided by the randomness early on. Um, but then obviously fell away, especially the, those two. Uh, what was it? Was it Belgium and Japan? The first, two first lap, first corner problems that that really derailed that bid. But that that feels to me like the the only real one in. Um, in recent in recent memory of a of someone being able to out outperform their car so to speak to actually launch a title bid am i am i doing anyone a disservice from the from the noughties i don't think i am no it's it's pretty rare because you know, by definition well it is <laughs> rare by definition because in order i would say in order to outperform your car you're also relying on others mm-hmm. um underperforming should we say yeah. Because you can only get 100% out of your car, so you're reliant on people in better cars getting less than 100% or less close to 100% out of it. So it's uh, it's very, very, uh, very, very difficult. Yeah, I know, I agree. I tell you, someone who doesn't have that problem is obviously Lewis Hamilton. And then another example of a superb transition from one question to another, Steve on Twitter, Ed, asks... Is Lewis Hamilton unfortunate in that he makes his victories often look easy, which often results in them being met with underwhelming recognition? 
Well, it's not a problem unique to Lewis Hamilton. I think any driver who takes a dominant win tends to be regarded as having a pretty easy job by many. And to be fair, there are occasions when it can be pretty straightforward. But but the genius of the, the, the truly great drivers is they put themselves in the position to look that comfortable time and time again. How often have we seen a quick driver with a good CV get in a top car and struggle to make the most of it? So this shows how accomplished these sorts of drivers are. I mean, we'd all, we'd all love to see people pulling passes at the last corner to win while on three wheels having come back from two laps down but that's just not not something that uh, that happens and yeah the all-time greats they make the brilliant look mundane but it's when you dig into that detail you see the the real artistry it's a bit reductive when people talk about the car doing all the work because the the car combined with the laws of physics defines the overall potential but it's the driver's job to get as close to as 100% out of that as, as possible, not just on one lap, but over every lap in a race and then over every race weekend uh, over, over a season. And, and that's just the, the reality of it. I would say that, you know, some some dominant victories are easier than others, though. It always makes me think, every now and again, you see on social media that old Fry and Laurie sketch turns up when you've got uh, Stephen Fry interviewing Hugh Laurie, and Hugh Laurie's a driver who's just won a Grand Prix, and to every positive question, he just answers with, oh, it's very difficult, it was very hard, and <laughs> just this incredulity from Stephen Fry, who uh, which leads to him uh, him punching him at the end. And actually, as, a, as an aside, he actually did accidentally punch Hugh Laurie in that, uh, for, for extra realism. He, he, didn't, he didn't intend to do it, but I've, I've digressed there. But yeah, the greats do make it look very, very easy. That's just... Uh, that's just the nature of it, but that doesn't mean it is because if it was that easy, then anyone could be a great. And if you look back over the history of Grand Prix racing, there's not that many you put into the all-time great bucket. Yeah, and I think um, I think it sort of ties into it's a slightly different point, but one of the things I think that gets sometimes gets misinterpreted in the modern day is that traditionally we we equate we we align great car control with um, you know a really delicate slide through the corners or. You know, I'm thinking some of the images from history is like Ronnie Peterson through Woodcut is one of the famous ones, isn't it? Um, and that's sort of seen as this, you know, great image of of car control. But in the modern in the modern age, especially with with more and more downforce, car control is always is all about preventing that. So people think that these cars look really easy and really easy to drive, and they they have different challenges to to, to cars of yesteryear. But the car control is in preventing that from happening, which is why you you see dabs of oppo a little bit less um going back to the original question because i just wanted to do a follow-up for mark which is do you reckon do you reckon lewis sort of um do you reckon people sort of look down on lewis or doubt how hard he's working because we often hear him complaining about tires and stuff like this over the radio and do you think that people have just sort of stopped believing him when he says that something's difficult or that he can't do something with the tires or something like that yeah, I think sometimes they're interpreted. Uh, those comments are interpreted the wrong way by the fans. All he's doing is um, maximising his chances and trying to prevent anything that's threatening his victory from creeping up on him, such as either the tyres are degrading or what have you. And it, it's a communication, a two-way communication with his race engineer that you're hearing. Um, winning, you know, winning a race is never easy in absolute terms, but obviously some are easier than others. But um, it's Hamilton's amazing ability that's ensured he's had the pick of the teams. And, and logically, from the start of the hybrid era anyway, there's been no question where the best place to be is. So there's this underwhelming recognition that um, there's, there's 
the question concerns it's 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 from it's from um it's from the outside it, it may be just exhaustion exhaustion of uh, the the same the lack of change in the re the results but it's certainly not a widely held view inside um he's he's held in awe um from inside um, not just his own team but throughout throughout the paddock from other teams as well I think sometimes there's a bit of a tendency to to almost kind of for people to belittle what what it takes to to win a Grand Prix. You see, you do see that with a lot of sports actually. People just thinking that because they they play football for their pub team or, or whatever uh, to a high standard for that, they just don't they they just don't see the differences just because someone might drive their car to the shop, so they think it looks easy. But you know, if you want to get an idea of how hard it is to win, say a Monaco Grand Prix while uh, while tire managing, why don't you take a take a leaf out of the, the Nelson Piquet book with his uh, description of of Monaco being like riding a bicycle around your apartment. So get get your uh, get your bike, round, ride round and round your house as fast as you possibly can while you've got, say, a slow puncher or something. And let's uh, let's see how long it is before you uh, before you crash. So it is phenomenally difficult to do what these these drivers do. And even the worst Grand Prix driver on the grid currently is still outstanding by uh, by any measure. Uh, Scott, moving on to you. This is a question from. Uh, from uh, well, from Mark's Mark's friend Sam, who I call Chris, as we established on the uh, on the uh, on the last uh, podcast. Uh, this is a question about uh, format, saying what's not to like about having a qualifying session on Saturday morning with half points, a reverse grid sprint race Saturday that gives a point for each place recovered from the reverse grid. Then the result forms a grid for Sunday's race, and then offer proper incentive. You offer proper incentives for qualifying, overtaking, and the main race. Fans will benefit, but the best would still prevail. How do you like that? proposal i like i like the element of points for qualifying because that fits in with a format that i'm a massive fan of but i'll get to that in a second uh, a reverse grid race that gives a point for each place recovered from grid position that's slightly trickier to determine because in that scenario do you then do you have points for finishing positions and points for for places gained otherwise if you start from pole and, and win you don't score any points for it um, although you do get pole for, for Sunday's race, if you do give points for places gained and end, end result, in there are there, there are going to be exceptional scenarios where people start at the back and finish high up and therefore get way more points from this weird race on Saturday than, Saturday than they do for the main event on Sunday. So there's, there's a bit of an issue there. But in general, this I like this idea of rewarding qualifying with points reversing the grid and then trying to mix things up so i don't think f1 should ever have to go down this route if the changes for 21 and now obviously 22 of the technical regulations have their desired effect because while i've got no issue with changing some like creating some variables i feel like that is only something that needs to be done if the sport itself is if the sport itself is in a position where it can't create that naturally. So if you end up with a set of circumstances that guarantee boring races and you just fundamentally cannot change the circumstances that those races are taking place within in terms of the, the design of the cars and, and circuits and how easy it is or isn't to overtake, if you exhaust all options, all credible options, and you can't do that, then there isn't, I don't see any reason why you can't artificially change stuff all. My favoured format for this has always been the idea of qualify for points. Then there's, and it goes and it's points from first all the way down to you can cut it off at 15th or you can cut, or you can do points for everybody to, to give them an incentive to go out and set the fastest time. 
And then you have a reverse championship order grid for the Grand Prix itself, because then you have an element of the weekend where these cars are absolutely on the limit, which is what qualifying is. And so there is always going to be this utter pure spectacle and there's going to be a reward for it as well. So there's no reason for a team to shun going out, risk damaging the car or something like this. So you, you, you protect that. But then the race on Sunday itself is fundamentally more entertaining because you've got the, the fastest car starting at the back rather than giving them a, a head start. So that's always been my favoured way of of artificially spicing things up. But I, I still retain some optimism we won't need to go down that route because if everything works as expected and promised we won't need to because everything will be slightly better anyway. Uh, I don't I don't like points for qualifying. Um, I'm very happy to have modified formats being looked at and considered as long as it's for good reasons, but I like the points to be to be awarded purely for for the race. That which does mean if you're going to have a reverse grid type thing qualifying is rendered pointless and therefore doesn't happen if if you see what I mean, but I I think it's quite important for the focus and the following of the sport to uh, and the, the prestige of the the Grand Prix itself to ensure that that it's the the race that 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 pays the the points. But I'm not I'm not anti uh, anti evaluating all sorts of uh, of formats. What about you, Mark? Are you uh, are you open to this sort of thing? Yeah, open, but I'm cautious. There's uh, probably a balance to be struck between the, um, the the history and the DNA and the um, the entertainment value for the casual fan. So I think you might be able to. <clears throat> come up with something on the, the Friday or Saturday that would um, uh, like a shorter, um, sharper race uh, that, that you might be able to um, encompass. But I would, uh, like Scott, I'd be reluctant to see the end of um, absolute all-out, flat-out qualifying because um, that's that's when you discover the purity of the, the, the performance order. Um, so, yeah, I think there's probably... There's probably something that can be done, but I I wouldn't go as far as Sam. All I, all I would add, which is just really to to combat your your major concern with it, Ed, which I, I do share completely. This is a a seri- it's a it's a Grand Prix World Championship, and therefore the majority of the work should be done in the Grand Prix itself. But in that situation, I don't see uh, my solution would be that you do award points for qualifying, but you award more points for the race. So you can't score. Um, whether that means you massively inflate the points available on a Sunday, for example, or, or however you find a way to make it work, I think I think there is, I think there is an avenue to go down there that that, that enshrines that that on the limit element of, of qualifying means that it isn't futile, but doesn't take away from the the, the ultimate value of, of the race on 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 Sunday. But I think you'd be. I think it would be murdering a few sacred cows, and we know that Formula One's not very good at that. So, yeah, they, there's a, uh, a a real like of the uh, maintaining the tradition, should we say? And some stuff is uh, is important to keep, but also tradition can be used as a defence for changing nothing all the time. So it's never it's never a, a, a great uh, thing. Uh, Mark, question for you now: the perfect question for a, a fundamentally audio only, non visual medium this is from carla george but i'm going to make life difficult for you by putting it to you saying what do you think cars would look like in f1 now if there were no regulations so total freedom of design like it was back when it first started so yeah i guess uh roll back many decades of ever restricted rules and uh and, and lay it out mark 
Yeah, it's a good question, actually, because if you look at, um, say, a Maserati 250F from the 50s, and then fast forward 20, 20 years to, I don't know, the Lotus 72 or something, it, it, they're from completely different ages. You can, it's very visually obvious. Um, whereas if you rewind 20 years back from now, the cars don't look that different to the casual eye. You'd, you'd need to be looking at the details of the aero surfaces and stuff like that, but uh, the casual observer, pretty much the same. And that is just a function of, of regulation. Um, it's, it's limited to where, where you can um, find the, the advantage. So um, if there were no regulation, I think they'd look a lot like the um, the virtual reality Red Bull X1 of a few years ago. Um, absolutely gorgeous thing. Um, sort of fighter aircraft type of uh, look. Uh, ground effect, fan car, 1,500 horsepower, and it was... They simulated its likely performance and put it around a current circuit, and it was something like, I don't know, 20, 30 seconds faster around Suzuka than a current car. And absolutely beautiful. But um, it would be pretty much impossible to race other cars. It, 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 the braking distances would be so so small. It, 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 every you know, there would, would be very, very bad race, and it would just be a lot of beautiful cars flying past one and you know, one after the other. It, would, it wouldn't actually be racing. Um, unfortunately, the technology got too advanced to make free regulations possible. Really, that's just just the way it went. Yeah, and it would be uh, difficult for the driver as well. You'd have all sorts of uh, measures have to ta- have to take for them to be able to absorb higher g forces than would normally be uh, uh, experienced. So uh, it'd be a fun experiment if someone would actually make one of these cars, though, wouldn't it? Just to, just to see what uh, what would happen. Yeah, there was a little bit of a spell of um, because Ferrari did one, didn't they? Uh, they did they, 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 you know the simulation of how a, a car, of F one car, of the future could look. And um, I think there was the Red Bull, there was a Ferrari. I think there may have been um, a Mercedes as well. They're all absolutely beautiful, and it's all how you would have imagined F you know F one cars would look by now um, if you were just a casual observer. It, it, it absolutely nailed that look. But, um, yeah, it, it, it wouldn't have been feasible. It wouldn't have been uh, practical. Uh, Scott, am I safe to relinquish control to let you bring Scott's people to the table? Have you have you done Scott's people this week? Uh, yeah, well, technically, uh, uh, technically I haven't, but it's because I had so many responses to the question we posed on, a, on, on the previous podcast Um and I just felt it was unfair to to ignore a bunch of um, other very valid and and good answers to that question, um, because the, the the question that was posed was um, if you could watch one one race back from history, not just in F one, any any race of your choice, with someone in lockdown, what would it be? And you know. If, if you if you give me a why, that was also uh, beneficial. We discussed it, the three of us, didn't we, at the end of uh, the last podcast? I think, Mark, you picked uh, you picked Mario Andretti, didn't you? And yeah, in the, Indy, in the eighty-one, yeah. And Ed, what did you pick? I've forgotten what you picked. Well, I caused problems by um, invoking. <laughs> did you misunderstand the the laws? No, no, not not really. <laughs> but I caused problems by invoking the need for uh, for a time machine. Oh uh, because yeah, I went for the nineteen thirty five German Grand Prix, Tazio Nivolari's yeah. famous victory in the uh, in the Alpha at the at the Nurburgring. You need a time um, machine for any of these things. They're all in the past. 
It's just a question of how far you go in the time machine, surely. Well, well they are, but, it, but for example, in your case, it would be feasible to put you in a room with a television, the full footage of the Indy 500 and Mario Andretti. That's possible. I see what you mean. Yeah, okay. Yeah. But uh, in fairness, you... one of the answers we included from Scott's people last time was someone wanting to watch back Monaco with uh, Jules Bianchi. So um, this, this, is a, this, is a, this is a realm of... Uh, of countless possibilities and the boundaries of uh, science and reality don't apply that's the beauty of scott's people ed uh, i'd like to uh watch the recent baku r factor race uh, of yours scott no never no we're not <laughs> discussing that i'd like Shut to up. watch i'd like to watch a future race yeah that, <laughs> that's very good i don't know you what make I, a don't killing. One, I don't know don't know how it pans out you could you would make an absolute killing off that you could come back and create Mark's sports almanac, and then you'd be absolutely sorted. As so, long as it's not, I'm, as long as it's the same universe, not a parallel one. Yeah, otherwise you're going to look like an idiot. We're so, creating. You're creating a lot of trouble with time travel here, Scott. No, I know. I'm going to go back to. I'm going to get on with get on with this. Um, so. I'm basically I'm going to I'm going for everything. We've got like another half a dozen ones here. There's a nice little mix of F1 and non F1. Uh, Colum Lawless, who I used to work with in uh, Formula E, he was the social media guru at Formula E a few years ago. Picks Sebastian Vettel and Monza 08, which would obviously be quite. I there, there's actually quite a few races that I think watching back with Seb would be would be interesting. You know, to, to pick up on what you said about you know if it's just you the driver in a room on TV full race replay. I think Seb would be really good at picking out some ones. Istanbul, uh, the, the Clash Royale was that twenty ten. Yeah, that would be a that would be a very good uh, that would be a very good one. Um, Spencer Murphy Murphy picked my one from the end of uh, the last podcast, Brazil 08. But he's not sure if he'd rather watch it with Lewis, and he'd ask, "Did you realise what was unfolding when you passed Glock or Massa?" You marvellous bloke, how did you cope and where did you find the strength to stand on the podium? Which, if you could watch back out Brazil 08 with one of the protagonists, would you watch it with Hamilton or Massa? Both of you. Um, I think I'd watch it with Hamilton because Massa's race was really straightforward, wasn't it? He just dominated. Um, so, yeah, it, it, uh, Lewis's got really, really complicated as the rain came down, didn't it? So, yeah, yeah I would uh, probably choose Lewis. And it would be less awkward at the end. I guess, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Ed? No, I'd, I'd agree with that purely for yeah. the same the same reason that Lewis's race was just a bit more eventful and a bit more interesting. There's there's more to talk about there. Although uh, although Felipe Massa's also he's he's good company and an interesting character as well. So uh, I, both of them, let's get both of them in. That would be best. <laughs> um, Chris Hoffman picked the 2016 Indy 500 and with Alexander Rossi. Um, if memory serves, I'm not an indie person, but if memory serves, wasn't that a, a very, very delicate fuel mileage race? And then yeah, Rossi ended up. It's it's actually, you can kind of see inside that one while you're watching it, because there's this great bit where, because it's Brian Herter who's uh, who's calling it for, for Rossi. And there's this bit where he's sort of talking him round. And then I think it's on the back straight on the last lap when Herter realises the fuel's fine. And he basically says, right, go. Because he, he knows Rossi's got enough fuel to get to the line, which is a really, really brilliant, uh, brilliant moment. Yeah, no, that's really that's really cool. Those those ones when there's strategy involved and sort of things are, are, are changing. Um, 
anything with changeable uh, conditions is going to be interesting, especially if you can then interrogate the person with them. For example, Ansi An- uh, An- Rulamo, or Rulamo, I- I'm very sorry, I've butchered his uh, his name there, but at least I've used his real name, unlike Ed with some other people. Um, he's got two, he's put two, so he's ignored the rules completely. Um, but for entertainment reasons, he would watch back the 2011 Canadian Grand Prix, but with Vettel, a lot of people picked that race but and said button. But he said with Vettel, which I think is just cruel. Uh, and for personal significance, Nürburgring 98 with Hakkinen. He's picked that, which is one that I've not heard before. So that's quite a good one. Um, Chris Bloom, Monaco 2011 with Lewis Hamilton. Lewis is quite a popular one in these, uh, in these ones. Monaco, uh, what happened in Monaco 11? Refresh my memory. Was that the, that wasn't the puncher one, was it? Was that the puncher one? Might have been. No, no, no Monaco 11 anyway. was uh, was the chaotic one, wasn't it, for him? It was the one where he collided with Maldonado at the end, wasn't it? Yeah, it was, we're, yeah. We're, he, yeah we're he, showing co- our he collided with Maldonado. At, uh, uh, he collided <laughs> with Pastor Maldonado at the uh, San Devot while, uh, while uh, trying to come back through right at the end. Um, yeah, that's an interesting uh-huh. one. That's a race that's kind of gone wrong for, for him. Yeah, yeah. No, that, that stuff's very interesting. Uh, Graham Walsh picked the 2009 Barcelona MotoGP round with Valentino Rossi uh, to hear his views on the race. Can you remember what happened in that one, Ed? Uh, no, I, uh, I I like and respect MotoGP, but I'm not quite as uh, embedded in it, should we say. So I can't... Uh, I mean, it's Valentino Rossi MotoGP, so it's probably pretty mega in one way, shape or form, I imagine. I, I'm going to put myself on a limb here and at risk of massive, massive uh, incompetence and mockery, which isn't surprising. I feel like that was the that was the really crazy uh that was a really crazy finish was that um no no that was a different year i'm thinking of rossi and lorenzo i think oh nine i think the important thing is that you've clearly prepared well for this segment well yeah but shut up so <laughs> that's that's do, the way you, i think you do. no i feel like no i feel, I feel but no barcelona i'm pretty sure barcelona was the um would you like I'm me? Gonna, to, I'm gonna. I'm gonna. I'm gonna. Would, you like, would you like me and, Ma- and Mark to, to fill time while you uh, while you research? I can. T- I mean, I can tell you that Rossi won it. I've just. I'm just looking it up from Pedrosa. This is live research. This is brilliant. Yeah. Uh, it was the, the 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 it's the the Barcelona race was the Catalan Grand Prix. I forgot it's because Mo- MotoGP has about 17 Spanish rounds over the course of the season but it was it was the race I was thinking of it's that ridiculous finish between Rossi and and, and Lorenzo um Rossi wins it by by less than a tenth um so I, I, I what's really annoying and the reason I think I thought I knew it off the top of my head is because I watched that race live um and that was mega so that is a that is an excellent excellent pick uh, and I'm going to end on and I haven't done this intentionally it's just the way I accidentally arrange these in documents I'm going to end on a nod to, to to Sweden from Patrick Hansen who he's not actually sure which race he'd watch back but he, w- he wants to watch back a 1994 British touring car race with Rickard Rydell um, obviously the 850 uh, estate which was I, I can't remember if it was genuinely conceived as a joke but it was a marketing ploy of Tom Walkinshaw's design wasn't it yeah, yeah, it was also yeah. um, better in the wind tunnel than the saloon, apparently. So that that was another reason. And it was really good for them, you know, taking the shop into and from the from the tracks. Yeah, so you, that was very very popular. Yeah. I I I would I don't know if I'd like to watch a race back with Rickard in that car. I would love to relive the moment he's told what the car will be. 
<laughs> that that I think is more interesting because I can't imagine it's, it was Rickard and Jan Lammers, wasn't it, in '94? Yeah. I can't ima- like unless they were on board with it from the very beginning. I can't imagine a scenario in my head where they respond positively to that suggestion. Yeah, it's uh, particularly not if you're Ricard Rydell and you're someone switching out of single seaters because opportunities have dried up. And uh, yeah, obviously Ricard was a very uh, accomplished uh, single seat driver, one in Macau, uh, of course. Uh, have, have you got a question for for future Scots people? Is this how this is supposed to work? Well, that was track. how it was. That is how it was envisaged in the uh, in the original. But I st- I, ha- I am still getting in, uh, suggestions for this one. Um, so I while it is a cop-out and it is unoriginal, I'm going to do one more call to arms for question, for this question, just because it's throwing up so many different series and drivers and eras and stuff like that. And it's just, it's just proving to be much more successful than I thought it would be when I asked it a couple of weeks ago. So I'm just going to have to continue and I'll keep asking people to, to, to lob me a, lob me a tweet with, uh, with uh, a race from history that they would like to watch back with someone with it. Uh, Presumably with the person in in, in that race, uh, but yeah, in in a lockdown situation, you can sit down, watch a race back with one person. Who would it be and why? So I'm sticking with that because it's throwing up so many interesting answers. I think in that segment we also learned why we shouldn't talk too much about MotoGP. So I will take this opportunity to suggest people subscribe to the Race MotoGP podcast, which is uh, a much more knowledgeable two wheeled. Uh, podcast. It's one of our, our many uh, podcast products. Uh, well, we're going to have to move on now. Obviously, we'll be back with another podcast uh, in the near future. Thanks very much, Scott Mitchell and Mark Hughes. Uh, please do head to therace.com and don't forget the hyphen. We've been writing all sorts of stuff on there, including uh, the piece we referenced of Mark's about what it'll take for uh, drivers to, to get themselves kind of back in the zone and back ready for when racing does begin and of course there's loads of coverage of f1's financial situation what's going to happen as well as some uh, interesting retro features on there check out our youtube channel as well uh, if you search for the race on youtube you will find us lots of uh, interesting things cropping up on there as well uh, thanks for joining us so stay home stay safe and join us again on the race f1 podcast <laughs>